We're in a series here called Counterfeit Gods. It's a series that is taking us through Lent where we are asking the question, what are the things that we have given our hearts to? What are the things that we have given our hearts to that give us a sense of worth, that give us a sense of identity, that give us a sense of fulfillment? And what does it mean to, in this season of Lent, the season of repentance, turn from those things and with full hearts and full minds and full selves, turn wholly to the one true God? Not as some religious rule, not as God saying, don't have any other gods before me. That's a rule. You got to check that box. But in realizing that whatever we give our hearts and our lives to, to fill us with a sense of worth and identity and fulfillment, those things will leave us hungry and thirsty for more. They will always leave us wanting more. And so we turn from them to find, as Jesus describes it, life and life abundant and life eternal. So most of the idols, most of the counterfeit gods, as we've discussed, that we turn to are not bad things. They're not things we would immediately look at and say, oh, that's wrong, that's bad. They're actually good things that we start loving and valuing too much and looking to them to give us something they can't. For example, we look to them, uh, we look at, at our first week in terms of love and marriage and relationships. And how that's certainly not a bad thing, and yet if we look to that to need it if we're single to feel fulfilled, or if we're married looking for it to make us happy like the uh, Happily Ever After People magazine covers, then it will always leave us feeling guilty and adequate and like we are settling for something less. We talked about it last week in terms of money, that money's not a bad thing, and yet if our sense of identity and worth comes from our net worth, then we are in a downward spiral of never finding who we are, and what life can be about for us. And today we're talking about something that when you first hear it, you might go, I don't know why that's bad. And again, the thing is, it is not bad. But it can become something that is too important to us. And that is, today we are talking about the idol of success. The idol of success. The counterfeit God of success. What does that mean? What is it in our lives? Now, Tim Keller in his chapter on success says that you and I in the West are particularly susceptible to falling into the trap of uh, going from faithfulness to success. And as I said, success isn't bad. I mean, I want to be successful in the things I do. We all do, right? I mean, I want to be successful in preaching a sermon. That's why I work at it. That's why I prepare during the week. That's why I spend Saturday nights getting ready for it. That's why it's a work night. It's because I don't want to sit up here and go, you know, I just kind of want to do an okay job. That's my goal. I want to be effective in this, right? This is why we do what we do. Think about the things you spend your time and effort on. You probably want to be effective in those areas. You probably want to excel in those areas, whether it's at work or what you volunteer in or whether you're a parent or a spouse or a friend. You know, we're doing a wedding here in, uh, in a, a little less than two weeks. Uh, I'm going to do a wedding with a young couple here, and as we've been meeting, going through premarital counseling, they're not sitting there going, yeah, we just, we just hope to be solid. You know, we just kind of hope to have an okay marriage. Like, that's not why the people are gathering. That's not why their friends and family are coming together. They are really believing that God's doing something amazing in their life, and they want to celebrate that, and they want to draw others into celebrating it so that it is hopefully something that is great and life-giving and wonderful, right? We want to be successful at the things we spend our, our lives on and what we spend our energy on, and that is not bad. But as we said, and as Keller writes about in this book, Counterfeit Gods, we are particularly susceptible in our culture to crossing the line from desiring to be faithful to the things God's called us to, to needing to be successful. 
It's a very thin line, but we are particularly suspect to it. And the reason for that is that we live in a very individualistic culture. Now, as Keller writes about, many cultures around the world today don't operate that way. Many of the cultures that we, we encounter in the New Testament were not individualistic. So success was defined differently than how you and I would mostly think about it. Success in most New Testament cultures was understanding that we were fulfilling our duty and responsibility in our family unit, and in our, which was usually bigger than the nuclear family, and that we were also fulfilling and dutiful in our responsibility to our culture. Now, when you and I say that's a really successful person, that is not how we mean it. We don't mean they're a really solid citizen. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, is that we define success based on individualism and individual accomplishment. And that is wholly different. Now, the ramifications of this are huge. I heard on NPR this week, and some of you may have heard this story, of a, a, a study that came out of a university in Amsterdam that many American universities were a part of that talked about the spike in narcissism that we have seen in the United States and in Western culture since the 1980s. More than a 30% spike, and narcissism is defined by extreme self-centeredness, extreme focus on oneself. And what they found is, is that there is a spike in college students and young adults and teenagers who are uh, uh, clinically narcissistic, a huge spike since the 1980s. And their studies went further to find, well, why is that? And the reason is because of parents and culture, that these young people have been raised in an environment that goes, you are special. You are special. You can do anything you set your mind to. You can be anything that you want to be. You are amazing. And what that has created in its extreme form are young adults who, when asked questions in surveys saying, do you think you're better than the average person? They're like, yep, I do. Do you think you're smarter than the average person? I absolutely am smarter than the average person. Do you think you are deserving of success more than most people? Yes, I think I am. It has created a culture where there is far less empathy for others who are struggling. This is not good. This is creating a culture of individualism and isolation and loneliness that alienates us from one from another because we need to not just be successful, we gotta be successful compared to others. And we need to be recognized as that. Keller says in this culture that we know that this is an idol that we have turned to in our lives when we spend our time comparing ourselves with others, needing to not just be successful in what we do, but others seeing us as success. And when they don't, it feeds a sense of inferiority on our part that we're not doing enough. He talks about it, uh, about the idea that when we are sacrificing and working for something, we're kind of climbing this mountain, we're struggling, we're achieving, we're going to get to the top. We get to the top, there's about 10 seconds of glory there, and then we look and everyone else has moved on and all we see in front of us are more mountain ranges that we got to go climb again and climb again and climb again, constantly needing to prove and show ourselves. And we don't just do it for ourselves, we do it as parents, we do it as grandparents. You think about this, I still remember... When our oldest daughter Miriam was four months old and we went for her four-month little like, check-in at the pediatrician and they looked at us and said, she's in the 90th percentile in height. And we're like, yes, yeah, she is. <laughs> Seriously, it's like, yeah, she is. That's right, she's near the top of the height. That means nothing. It means nothing what your four-month-old is. And yet there was this sense in us of going, yeah, she's taller than most kids at four months old. 
Think about what happens when standardized tests come out. Seriously, this is a crazy thing. Or in little league sports, the parents are just like into it, right? To almost an unhealthy level. You think about it when standardized test reports come out and parents get it and open it and the sense of validation or shame that comes on us when we read that. Because there's the score of whatever they made and we don't know what that score is and we don't understand how the numbers are and we don't really care. What we look to is the next column because the next column on the report is what? The percentages, what the percentile is our child in, in these scores based on both their school district and also on the national scale, and our children are not average. Are they? They're special, and they're at the top of every list, and they need to be. And if they're not, then we've got to do something. We've got to do something about this. We've got to take steps. We've got to hire tutors. We've got to enforce things more. We've got to do whatever we've got to do for the test scores to reflect the reality of our child's specialness. And if they are doing well, then that validates what we do, and we feel great for about 10 minutes until we realize they got more homework to do, they got more tests coming up in six months, and other kids are coming for them, and so we have got to get going again. We are nuts about this stuff, and it is rampant in our culture of finding our worth, our sense of self, our identity, in whether we are successful and recognized as successful compared to to others. Friends, where that is you, you will pursue something your entire life and always be looking for more. Always. But we keep climbing those mountains. Contrast that with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, says this about Jesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He says, if there is, in, is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is it. Let the same mind be in you, that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is writing about here is the mindset that was in Jesus, which was not one to need the validation of others, was not one that needed to be seen as successful. In fact, for much of his ministry, he was not a success. It was a constant lowering and humbling and others walking away and alienating him to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's not someone who's concerned about his legacy. It's not someone who's concerned about what he leaves behind. It's not someone who's concerned with what others think. But it is a singular mindset that is focused on faithfulness versus success. Now, faithfulness can lead you into areas of success and excellence. They're not mutually exclusive. But the mindset is not the pursuit of success, but the pursuit of faithfulness. And if you want to manifest that further, it's not just faithfulness 
for our own sake, but it's faithfulness in the way of Jesus that humbled himself so that salvation could come through all. It's a humbling that seeks to serve the interests of others, to love others in that way. Think of it this way. I loved playing basketball growing up, and and in my family, we had a number of people that went to the University of North Carolina where Dean Smith was the Hall of Fame basketball coach for many decades there, won some national titles, won a bunch of uh, ACC titles. And Dean Smith was also a Christian and an outspoken Christian on many different issues during his time as a coach. And while he was coaching, he developed this philosophy that I think helps this to be illustrated, this mindset. Whenever North Carolina scored a point, and they scored a lot of them through the years, the five players would run down the floor to play defense. But all four players had to point to one player to salute them on the way down the court. And that always happened. They would point to one player, four pointing to one. And the one player they would point to was not the one who scored the basket. We would think the one who scored the basket would be the one that they would point to. And indeed, in the media and in culture, anytime you look at a basketball box score, the first thing you see is who was the leading scorer. We value that above and beyond anything else. But where they pointed was to the person who made the assist on the basket, the person who made the pass to the one who took the shot and made it, the one who passed up a good shot so that someone else could take a great shot and make it. That was the one that they pointed to every time down the court. And at the end of the year, the statistic that North Carolina basketball valued above else was not points, The media celebrated who was the leading scorer on the team. The statistic that they've measured success by was who had the most assists on the team. And that was the player that was deemed most valuable. That's the kind of mindset that we're talking about here. A mindset that seeks to be faithful as Jesus was in seeking to lift up and serve those around you rather than a preoccupation with how others see you and how you compare to them. Here's a different translation. It's a way of of getting into this. It's it's, it's a translation of the same verses we just read from Philippians 2, but it's from the message. It's the first four verses that puts it in a little bit more modern language. It says this, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, and that word care is emphasized, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage, but forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. This is a much better definition of success in God's economy. So what would that look like? What would that life look like for you? Well, every once in a while, you run across an example that seems to capture it, and we're going to show you a video in a few moments that I believe does. And this video, to set it up for you, is the story of a father and a son named uh, Dick Hoyt and Ricky Hoyt. Some of you may know this story. They're known together as Team Hoyt. Now, the story of this family is that Dick was uh, somebody who had his life planned out in front of him. This is the father. 
He knew the life he was going to live. He uh, had a career. He was actually in the military, in the Air Force. He was going to work his way up. He was already an officer as a young man. He was going to sacrifice to uh, get towards the top of the chain of command, or if the right opportunity opened up, he'd leave, go into the private sector, and do quite well for himself. He was going to get married. They were going to have a family, white picket fence, golden retriever, Volvo station wagons, the whole lot. They knew what success was like. But as so often happens in life, unexpected things take place. And when they found out, the Hoyts, that they were pregnant with their son, Ricky, they rejoiced they were going to have a son. But during the birthing process, something happened where oxygen was cut off to Ricky's brain for an extended period of time. And they didn't know the ramifications of this, but it was clear that uh, there was going to be profound differences that Ricky was going to experience and challenges growing up. It became quickly apparent that he was not able to walk, that he was not able to talk, that he was not able to communicate the way that most children are. But after 10 years of working with him, and some doctors felt like that the Hoyts should just put Ricky uh, in a home or in an institution, but they felt like that, that, and they are followers of Jesus, they felt like that Ricky was tracking what was going on with his eyes, even though he couldn't communicate. And this is many years ago, and at age 10, they finally saved up enough money to get a newfangled kind of computer that helped people communicate who couldn't speak. And they hooked it up and quickly found out in the first moments that Ricky had understood everything that had been going on in the world around him for all 10 of his years. He just couldn't communicate it as we normally do, as many of us normally do. They fought to enroll Ricky in a public school in the Boston area, and they did so, but it took years, and it wasn't until the age of 13 that he was admitted into public schools with, um, to be in a, a, a classroom. And in his second year as a student, at age 15, uh, a tragedy happened at the school. Another student, a classmate of his, was in a car accident and was a lacrosse player and was paralyzed. And the school and the parents and friends organized a five-mile fun run, if you consider that fun. Uh, five-mile, I consider like a half-mile fun. Uh, a five-mile fun run to raise support for the medical bills for this family. And Ricky asked his dad if they could run in it. Well, Dick had been working hard, had been sacrificing, had been following his path of success. And he said, well, you know, we had never done this before. I didn't run. We didn't. But they got out there on a Saturday with all the other students and families and the starter's gun went off and they started a five-mile race with Dick pushing Ricky in his wheelchair. He said by the end of mile one, he couldn't run anymore and they were walking. By the end of mile two, he couldn't breathe anymore and they finished second to last of all the participants in this race. And yet when they got home, even though Dick was sore and could hardly move, Ricky got on his computer and said, Dad, that was the first time in my life I felt like one of the kids. Can we do it again? So they started running more races. The races started increasing in length. Dick had to make decisions about how to spend his time. He couldn't work the same number of hours. He couldn't do the things that he had thought he was going to do because the training required more and more of his time and energy and attention. But he and Ricky kept training, and eventually they ran half marathons and then a full marathon. They ran the Boston Marathon um, in their hometown, 26.2 miles. And at the end of that race, Dick said that he thought that he could maybe like celebrate at that point, and Ricky looked at his dad the next day and said, Dad, how do you feel about swimming? Um, and so they started swimming and training together, and they ran a triathlon together where you swim, bike, and run. And eventually, as Dick, the father, was in his mid-50s, these two, father and son, 
team qualified for probably the most grueling one-day sports event in the world, and that is the Hawaii Ironman. Now, the Hawaii Ironman, just so we're clear about what we're about to see, you're like certifiable to be in this thing. It is a 2.4-mile swim in the ocean with waves and currents and other swimmers. I mean, this is very competitive to get into. Great, great athletes who are competing in this, pushing each other, shoving each other to get to the front. After the 2.4-mile swim, you get out of the water and you immediately get on a bike and you have a 112-mile bike ride that you do. And at the end of the 112-mile bike ride, you immediately put on your running shoes and run a full marathon, 26.2 miles, where you finish. Dick and Ricky Hoyt qualified for the Hawaii Ironman, and this video is the story of that first race for the Hoyts. That's success. Very few of Dick Hoyt's plans for his successful life have worked out. That's success. What does that mean for you this week? What does that life and that call to faithfulness look like for you this week? And as you think and dream and pray about that, listen to Paul's words again. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people who are guilty of needing success, of craving validation, of finding our worth and how we compare to others. We confess that we are a people who seek and find joy in being better than others and find our inferiority when we see others as maybe being more successful than us. Lord, help us, no matter who we are, to turn from this need for validation, need to accomplish more than someone else. Help us to seek to be faithful. Help us to seek to live lives like Jesus that seek to humble ourselves and to make much of others and to open doors for them and to find our joy and our meaning in others' lives coming forward and springing alive. Help that to be the mission that you've called us on this week. Help us to pursue that out of love for others. Reorient what we see success meaning in our lives and in our world. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.